From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Vanessa Handy, the show's producer, and I'm your host for this episode. Since 1965, the Voting Rights Act has been integral to protecting people of color at the polls. But in recent decades, the strength of the VRA has been diminished by decisions like Shelby County v. Holder in 2013 and the subsequent influx of voter restrictions imposed by states. Despite this, there are ways we can fight back in the courts. Section 2 of the VRA prohibits voting practices and procedures that discriminate on the basis of race, color, or membership in certain language minority groups. It is the right of private individuals like you and I to challenge discriminatory voting practices and organizations like the ACLU to support those who raise these challenges. But now, the right to bring these crucial cases before the courts is being threatened. On January 30th, we received a decision from the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals that it will not rehear Arkansas State Conference NAACP versus Arkansas Board of Apportionment, a case which challenges the 2021 Arkansas State House map for unlawfully stifling the voting strength of Black Arkansas residents. This decision upholds a 2022 lower court ruling in the case that radically concluded voters may not sue to protect their voting rights under Section 2. It's important to stress how unprecedented this is. More than 400 Section 2 cases have been litigated in federal court in the past four decades to protect the voting rights of racial and language minorities. And private plaintiffs have brought the vast majority of them. It is a disappointment. It really hurt the precedence of this case of many cases that our conference have filed to speak for the voiceless of not just people in Arkansas, but throughout this nation, injustice issues, especially for voter rights. That's Barry Jefferson. I am from the state of Arkansas. I am the state conference president for the NAACP here in the state of Arkansas. As a plaintiff in this case, Barry is leading the charge for his community to get equitable voting power. And Barry is not alone. In states across the country, other individuals have taken up the fight for fair maps, like Dorothy Naren. I am a plaintiff in the Louisiana cases for redistricting legislative as well as congressional districts, and I live in Louisiana. And Kadita Stone. I'm from Montgomery, Alabama, and I'm a plaintiff in the Allen v. Milligan court case. In today's episode, you'll hear from Barry, Dorothy, and Kadita about their experiences as plaintiffs in lawsuits challenging racially gerrymandered district maps under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. They'll share details about their cases, what compelled them to take action, and how we can all be voting rights advocates. In its decision to not rehear Arkansas State Conference NAACP versus Arkansas Board of Apportionment, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals has undermined the right of individuals and organizations that represent them to challenge voting restrictions that impact them by filing lawsuits under Section 2 of the VRA. But the fight is not over yet. Barry Jefferson is a plaintiff in this case. He walked us back to the beginning of his story. I've been part of the NAACP for many years, and I've been a member, I've been a branch president, then I serve as the state conference as a political action chairperson. That's where this case started. 
my committee, we looked at it and we saw that when they was drawing up the maps, how unfair it was, how they were taking voices away from ordinary people that who cannot vote for candidates of their choice. And we know in history, what happened when that happened is those people don't represent me or represent the people in their district. When we looked at it as a committee, we can do nothing but say, hey, we had to stand up and fight. We had to show that we are disappointed in this map. That makes complete sense. I love that you saw a problem and knew that you couldn't just stand by and watch. And I think that a lot of people could be in that situation where you're seeing a problem and you feel so compelled to take action. But I think few folks will be in the position of a plaintiff. So I'm wondering what has the experience of being a plaintiff actually been like as someone who is an individual voter, but also a leader in your community? Being a plaintiff, we was attacked as an organization. I was attacked personally as an individual. They said we didn't live in the state of Arkansas. It's outside organization that's coming in trying to determine what Arkansas uh, need. And that kind of bothered me a lot because I was born in Arkansas. I lived in Arkansas my whole life. Not only that, I have children and, and a wife. I own property in Arkansas. I went to Little Rock Central High School, the historical school in, in Arkansas. I went there. So when they made those statements, because they disagreed with us and they didn't like that we was filing a lawsuit, that was hurtful. Then they start questioning our organization. And everybody know that we've been in the state of Arkansas for over 60 years. Everybody know Daisy Bates was our former president. Everybody know Daisy Bates stood with the Little Rock Nine. Everybody know on behalf of the NAACP. So we had to go back and prove it and bring up history of how long we've been here and how long we fought. And that is what we have to do time and time again. So it was the first time I ever had to speak as a plaintiff in a courtroom on behalf of a whole state, on behalf of African-Americans and people of color. Um, this is the first time I had to sit in, in that chair in front of a judge and, and listen to them question who I was. And so those are some of the things that we I had to deal with the plaintiff, but I would never change. I would do it again in a heartbeat because it's that important. I always give people a story that the reason why I do this work is not because I enjoy it, but it's my responsibility because I have children that who are looking for me to defend them and fight for them. Then they have friends that are looking for me to defend them and fight them. Then they have mothers and fathers that are looking for me to defend them and fight them because they are the voiceless. Uh, and if my voice can help them and move up, I want to continue to do that. Absolutely. And when it comes to redistricting, why is this such an important issue? How do you see redistricting as something that is going to impact your community tenfold, specifically in Arkansas? I think every citizen in this country, every citizen in this country should be able to vote for a candidate of their choice. When you draw lines to cut people out of a district so they cannot vote for their candidate, you're taking their voices away. They have a right to choose the candidate of their choice, not a candidate that you want for them, that who don't speak on what they believe in. That's not right. It's not fair. And that's why we have to really start looking at how these lines are drawn to cut people's voices out. And it's not just Republicans, it's Democrats say too, because we're nonpartisan. We want every voice heard. So this is a lot about 
proper representation and yes. returning to the case itself, as I said before, the Eighth Circuit choosing to not rehear this case in a decision that came out just a few weeks ago. This decision applies to Arkansas and six other states. And you talked a bit about how we're going to continue to fight this. I'm wondering, how is this decision to not rehear this case going to impact your community, do you think? Again, take the voices away because people had hopes. I get calls every day. People had hopes that they would see what this decision that the lower court made and, and what the decision that the three appellate judges made, how that was going to affect our community. That's the impact. That's the impact. We still have work to do. We're still going to continue to fight and look at all alternatives that we have to see what can we do to make this wrong into a right. We can take it to the United States Supreme Court, but we know the dynamic of that and what they have done to um, voter rights acts already. Right. We can look at other laws and, and other avenues. We can go through the court system and, and, and things like that. We're looking to have some calls with our, I had a meeting with our national general counsel for the NAACP. Also, we'd be having a call with our whole state executive committee and all the state branches of the state conference. So we can all come together because this is not a decision just for Barry Jefferson. Mm -hmm. The decision is for the whole state of Arkansas. So that means we need to bring everybody to the table and see what direction should we go. The decision to not rehear this case in Arkansas makes the Eighth Circuit panel a radical outlier as it contradicts decades of precedent including from the U.S. Supreme Court and the Eighth Circuit itself, and every other source of authority on this question. In contrast, this past December, the Fifth Circuit denied Louisiana's petition for rehearing in Robinson versus Landry, reaffirming the right of private individuals to protect their voting rights through lawsuits under Section 2 of the VRA. In Robinson v. Landry, we argue that Louisiana's 2021 Congressional Redistricting Plan dilutes Black Louisianans' voting power as a result of failure to create a second congressional district with a Black majority. It's consolidated with another case called Nairn v. Landry, which challenged Louisiana State House and Senate district maps. We won in these cases, and the Louisiana legislature passed a map with a second majority Black congressional district this January. Dorothy Naren spoke to us about what it took to reach this victory and what compelled her to take action through these cases. Here, where I live in rural Louisiana, which is Napoleonville, it's about an hour and a half from New Orleans, an hour from Baton Rouge, and having visited this area every year of my life for all of my 57 years, I didn't see any changes. So it was almost uh, disheartening to be back and to be back long term and to see that not much has changed. People are living in the same trailers. People still don't have jobs. People are in and out of prison. People I love who don't have opportunities to pursue their higher education. So seeing how much hasn't changed, it was a vital clarion call to yeah, get involved, do something. Like so many other Black people in the United States, I grew up hearing stories about how my grandfather voted for the same time with his daughter, my mother, Virginia. And they had to, you know, sit around and help people to prepare to pass the voters' test, to spell democracy, to take people to the ballot. So 
I heard these stories over and over again, which to me was so meaningful. And it meant that, you know, this fight is far from over and that the struggle continues. So when I got the call from the ACLU representative, it was like, I will absolutely, fearlessly, gladly, happily, gleefully be involved in this case. I could not say no. That's incredible. And it really sounds like you are operating in the legacy of your family and and this generational fight. So you get this call from ACLU representatives to join this case. What happens next? I mean, I think for so many people listening, and even for myself, I don't know what it's like to be a plaintiff. So what was the experience like from the moment you got that call and you decided to be on board? It was very dignifying where I worked very closely with my legal team and they were incredibly compassionate, knowledgeable, hearing the story and and listening to the point where I was able to unpack all of my experiences, my observations, my lived experience, the experiences of my family before me. I was honored to be a part of that because the interviewing processes that took place and taking statements and just really looking at what is this like and what do you want it to look like as far as your community. It helped me to visualize like, wow, what could it look like? What difference would it make if we did have more congressional Black districts? What would it look like if we did win something, you know, and have some sense of economic development in our area? Redistricting in this area, and I mean, just to show how disconnected we were and how diluted we were. My neighbors would vote in one district and I voted in another. So there was absolutely no way to be able to organize the community or to even have a discussion on, well, when do we vote on some issues? Because people would say, I don't know. You know, so it was important to have a win so that people could see that, wow, this area can be transformed. So it's so meaningful for us here. Mm. And for your experience as a plaintiff, you brought so many of these amazing visions for how to address some of the problems in your community and the ways that you saw the redistricting to be a remedy. In some ways, you were also kind of testifying for others in your community and being that voice. I'm wondering if you could share with us what you said in your testimony. I went through from the beginning of really my story where I talked about how I am of this soil, my mother's 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 mother's. I can trace my family back almost five generations to where we were enslaved on the plantation that we were enslaved in. And then to how we participated in the rebuilding of this community, including the church that I live next door to, St. John the Baptist Parish, which is 175 years old. You know, so just to have this area where we have been doing our best as a community to rise up. So looking at how cancer has decimated many people within our population, including my mother, to how there are very few job opportunities to back when we were enslaved to during Jim Crow, where Black kids couldn't go to the same schools as white kids, but yet our taxes all went to those same schools that we could not be a part of, to then how we are 
in the way of hurricanes. So just all of these issues that are compounding how we exist and how we're not able to get simple things done half the time where, you know, jobs and people being able to stay here. There are two choices, one to stay and almost do nothing or to leave. You know, it can't be like that where we all want to leave Louisiana. So to be able to stay here and fight was my distinct honor. And to be here and build is, that's where we're going. We are completely changing the economic scenario here in our community. And we can do that. Amazing. Well, we're so glad that you have stayed and chosen to fight for your community and your family and the power of your testimony and and others, I think, shows in the decision that we got from this case. So the latest decision came last month in January when the Louisiana legislature passed a map with a second majority Black congressional district. This is what we wanted, and this was a huge win that was the result of years of litigation and organizing and lobbying that we know you're familiar with. The map now goes to Governor Jeff Landry, who is expected to sign it. And I'm wondering, what was your immediate reaction to getting this news after fighting for this for so long? It was like this kind of, you know, hold your breath, hold your breath, and then... (sighs) to be able to exhale just a little bit. It wasn't the first map that we wanted, but it was the second map that still has a majority Black district. So we got what we negotiated and what we fought for, and we're just beginning. So we've got another case that we're waiting to hear back on for maps as far as the legislative districts here, and also to um, just you know roll up our sleeves and get to work because we know that we can transform this part of the country and we can transform every community along here where we have not had fair representation, we have not had fair opportunities. And we're here, We again, we have solutions that we know will work to bring us up. We know how to party, we know how to cook, we know how to build, we know what we need to protect ourselves from hurricanes and wind coming in. So to have representatives who also know what we know and who will listen to us will make a huge difference in how we navigate our lives and so that our children's children won't have to just leave as the only opportunity. They can find opportunities right here in Napoleonville. That's what we're voting on. Amazing. I think for many folks, the focus is on voting power, which is a big part of it. But I also think another part is making the maps reflect the way that the communities are organized. We have this big win. We have a new map. How do you want it to change things for you and your community? What's next? So to me, this kind of change is best used when we've got a carrot in front of us. So we've got incentives to be able to come together instead of any kind of shaming people who maybe didn't vote before. Maybe they've never voted. And why? You know, let's talk about it so that it's not just the usual suspects, but we expand that circle to be as inclusive as possible so that we have those who will turn 18 and understand the process or 16 or 17 so that we've got our young people, we've got the people in the middle who maybe were a little apathetic saying that, oh, nothing changes, voting doesn't help, voting doesn't work. So that we've got examples and we've got cases where people can say that, look, this is where change is beginning. 
so that we've almost got a regenerative belief system in place that this country is ours too, so that people really see that we are a part of something that's larger than we are, and we all have something to give into it. So it's the community cohesion that is most important, and we get to do that during Mardi Gras. So here we are during carnival season, (laughs) and we are together during these times. So if we can be together to celebrate, and we can be together to work, and we can be together to vote. So it's the start of New Beginnings. New Beginnings are also in order in Alabama, where we reached a similar outcome. As of October 2023, a district court ordered the state to adopt a congressional map that includes two districts where Black voters will have the opportunity to elect the candidates of their choice. This is a result of the decision last June by the Supreme Court in Allen v. Milligan, formerly called Merrill v. Milligan. Alabama is more than 26% Black, but in previous maps, just one of the state's seven congressional districts was majority Black. Plaintiff Kadita Stone is a longtime community organizer who brought her vigor for social justice to the fight for this new map. Yeah, so I've been in the political arena, uh, social justice arena, since I was 13 years old. Um, so my father got sentenced uh, 60 years in prison um, for selling marijuana. And, you know, that's kind of crazy right now, considering you have 38 states where marijuana is legal medicinally or recreationally. So, like, when I turned 14, I started paging at the Alabama House of Representatives. Um, and a page program is uh, a, a young girl or boy going from the House floor to lobbyists, to staff, to just kind of being a mini intern, something like an intern for representatives. Um, And so fast forward in like 2016, due to like all the advocating and lobbying I did on behalf of my father, uh, he was released. And so from that point on, it was just a, it was just like a, a fire up under me. You know, I, I, I did grow up in Montgomery, Alabama, the birthplace of the civil rights movement. So I've always known about these things. You know, they're always around Dexter Avenue, passing it all the time, Rosa Parks' old house, like things like that. They're they're just around, but it wasn't until it became very personal for me. And like that really just set a fire up under me and was kind of like, I got to get on the streets. I got to let people know. Um, And so I immediately went to like grassroots organizing, which in turn starts with like voter registration and things like that. So I, I would definitely say like that was my start into how I got into it before redistricting came about. In 2020, I was chosen as a crowd fellow um, through the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. In that coalition, their main focus was redistricting that year. And so they partnered with like other states across um, the South and uh, assigned like crowd fellows to different ones. And I was assigned to Alabama Forward. And so part of my job as a fellow was to go out and educate communities. Specifically, I was assigned to like the Black Belt region of Alabama, um, which consists of 13 counties. And so I was assigned to go educate them about redistricting, let them know about the upcoming redistricting process, you know, creating trainings for folks to understand, partnering up with elected officials so that they could understand the process. Um, and so that's really how I got started in the entire redistricting process. In terms of getting you on board for redistricting, it sounds like you were the right person for the job, especially given the changes you were able to make from such a young age in your community. And it sounds like outside of this case, even the impacts that you've made are tenfold. So that's incredible. I want to go back to this case. So as a plaintiff in Allen v. Milligan, what has the experience been like? How did you bring 
those experiences from community organizing into this casework? Yeah, I think a lot of it was just, uh, you know, building relationships and trying to educate people because redistricting isn't something that's just like easy to follow. You know, it's like multiple steps that go into this. You know, we have to take the census, but then you're like beating all of the myths and theories there are about the census. I know one that I constantly heard was like, they want to be nosy. And so I think that was like one of the most like, you know, misinformation, disinformation kind of things that was going on while like being out there in the field and like discussing what this case could mean for the future of our voting rights. And then like, explaining, you know, the effects of Shelby County v. Holder and how, because of that case, we had to sue on a Section 2 violation. You know, we no longer have Section 4B and Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which protected communities like Amine, protected communities like Dorothy, and like other individuals who are also suing their states. And so that, you know, bringing that Section 2 violation in, which really is the only piece left of the Voting Rights Act that we have to really receive justice when it comes to redistricting or really justice when it comes to voting rights, period. And so just kind of taking that information everywhere I went. Mm -hmm. It's not an easy task, especially trying to translate that to an audience that may not be as familiar. So it's a hard task and a noble one. (laughs) And I'm glad that you did it. The Supreme Court handed down a decision in this case last June, and this was a big win. I'm wondering... What was your reaction, your immediate reaction to this case after having done this work? I was actually in the hair store and I just like bust out <laughs> crying because oh. I am not a negative person. Oh. I always, you know, think positively, but I also had to be realistic. Like I understood the kind of Supreme Court we were dealing with here. Like this wasn't, you know, this this was the same Supreme Court that struck down Shelby County Beholder. Well, one of the justices, a few of the justices were on there, um, but this was a conservative court. I mean, Trump got to a point folks on there. Like he didn't appoint people who cared about marginalized communities. He didn't care. He didn't appoint people that cared about black and brown folks. So it was very scary because what if we would have lost section two of the Voting Rights Act? Like that, that is dangerous. And so I was elated, similar to what Dorothy said about she like could breathe. Like it was like a weight was Mm. lifted off for her case. And so I felt the same thing. I felt the same sentiments. Yeah. We're kind of seeing a similar situation in Alabama as we did with Dorothy and Louisiana. And that is true in the way that the redrawing that followed the Supreme Court decision took place. So we watched the Alabama state legislature repeatedly defy court orders in its redrawing of the map, failing to include a second opportunity district to ensure that Black Alabamians have fair representation in Congress. I'm sure you were watching this happen time and time again until in September 2023, a special master was assigned to the task. And finally, in October 2023, a federal court selected a map that meets the criteria and has these two majority Black districts. I think it could be easy for folks to look at this decision and think, okay, this is simply a win for the voting power of Black Alabama residents. But I think we know that there are ripple effects, and this isn't just about voting. How do you think this is going to impact you and your community at large? You know, I think the future looks hopeful. You know, when you do have a community who does not have, you know, has things being taken away from them or just not their voice being heard, period. There are certain things that are on the line 
And, you know, we do talk about voting power essentially because that's what this is. Our voting power is on the line. But also we had to think about the types of things that redistricting can bring to our community. Education becomes on the line. Criminal justice becomes on the line. Healthcare becomes on the line. All these different things in our uh, the social justice realm become jeopardized when we don't have the fair representation that we need. And so there is no... Uh, not enough representation. You know, we do have that one uh, representative, but like one person can't do it alone. And there has to be more people in those silos working together to get things done. But when you have one individual who cares about this community and then seven others, I don't think the likelihood of you actually getting something done in your said community is going to happen because you have those seven people who don't really care, don't want to care and don't even try to care, you know? Those are the things that become on the line, you know, when it comes to redistricting. Redistricting has high stakes, which is why it's all the more necessary for voters to be able to challenge the process and discriminatory maps. Though the Eighth Circuit's decision does not apply to every state, it invalidates a voter's right to do so. And Kadita reminded us of its implications. What the Eighth Circuit Court did is a, it's a dangerous ruling. So currently we only have seven Black attorney generals across the country. And basically what they're saying in this, you know, ruling is because we as private citizens can't do it, our governments will do it. Well, if we're being honest, if we only have seven Black attorney generals across the country out of 50 states, that's going to tell you right there who who really, you know, who's going to actually actively sue their governments. You know, part of our job as citizens of this country is to hold our government accountable. And if we aren't put in a position to where we can hold our government accountable, then what are we doing? Is it democracy or is it uh, tyranny? I don't don't know. It's, It's not very clear. In other states, it's now a waiting game for Black voters to reap the benefits of new, fair district maps. Having achieved such a monumental victory, Dorothy reflected on her experience as a plaintiff and what she learned in the process. I think my biggest lesson from being a plaintiff is that change is possible and that it's got to be continuous, that we together are stronger and that we lifting up Louisiana, lifting up Alabama, lifting up Arkansas can lift up the United States. And so to have another group of people who want to keep a third of the population in Louisiana down or 27% of the population in Alabama down, no, we're not going in that direction. We are rising up. And that will lift up this entire area so that together we are stronger. That I know for sure. And finally, we have some advice from Barry on what you can do to support this work on the ground and in your communities. One is that you need to join us. Join in this fight. I mean, join the NAACP, join the ACLU, join the public policy panel, join these organizations that are standing in front, on the front line fighting these fights. They need your voice. They need your energy. They need all everything you can give them. Two, is that if you truly believe in this fight and you believe that people have a right to stand up for democracy and fight and have a voice, uh, give, donate, give to these organizations, the NAACP, to the ACLU, to the public policy, because sometimes we fight so hard and sometimes we don't have the funds to do it, but we have to do it. This is the third thing. This is the most important thing. Bring someone new to these organizations, a young person. Why I say young people, and I tell my my state conferences all the time, my time gonna wind down. Other people's time is gonna wind down. So we need a young generation to stand up in the gap 
so they can stand and continue this fight on. Because we're not going to have a fight if we don't have the next generation in that fight with us. Fair maps and the private right of action for Section 2 lawsuits are crucial components of restoring and strengthening the Voting Rights Act. Congress must prioritize voting rights as the foundation for all our other civil liberties. But individuals like our three plaintiffs and organizations like the ACLU should be able to continue taking them to task. To learn more about redistricting, the cases we mentioned in this episode, and the ACLU's efforts to protect voting rights at large, visit the link in the episode description. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. At Liberty is a production of the ACLU, produced by me, Vanessa Handy, and Kendall Seesmeyer. This episode was edited by Matt Boynton. Genesis Magpio is our intern. Until next week, stay strong.